Thank you for joining us for the first ever Bureau 42 X-Files Retrospective Podcast. This is Episode 1. So because it's Episode 1, I'm going to start off by just talking a little bit about why I'm doing what I'm doing, what I hope to gain from it, what I'm hoping you'll gain from it, and why I'm hoping we'll all enjoy it. We'll start off with a little personal history. In the year 2000, I was working as a graduate student, and I was doing my studies at CERN, which is the particle physics facility some of you may have heard of. Now, while I was out there, I was finding that I have the type of personality that can be sucked wholly and completely into my job and into my work. So I was looking for an outlet to try and basically justify taking time for myself and doing activities I enjoyed. One of the websites that I regularly visited was technopagan.org, which shortly became bureau42.com. Dave Smith had created the site, and a few weeks into the run, he put out a call asking for help for people to contribute to articles, and basically so he wouldn't have to do the whole job himself and try to turn into a, a website that's better than any one man can do. I saw this as an opportunity to make sure that I was taking some time to do basically personal projects and watch the TV and the movies I enjoyed by writing reviews for them. So I volunteered to write reviews for the then-upcoming eighth season of The X-Files. So it really is The X-Files that brought me into Bureau 42 in the first place. The X-Files were first broadcast on September 10th, 1993, making today the 20th anniversary. So today I'm going to kick off our X-Files retrospective podcast series. We're going to go through and review the pilot episode and talk about the things that made that pilot special. This time next week we'll talk about the second episode, then the third, and so forth. Each season worth of podcasts will kick off on the 20th anniversary of the premiere of that season. So the first few seasons of our retrospective podcast will premiere in September's, the next few will be in November's, and the whole thing should wrap up sometime in the year 2022. So I hope you're in it for the long haul, because I certainly am. I also hope I can deliver something that keeps you entertained. Please give feedback in Bureau 42 in the comments where you first downloaded this this podcast in that comment section. I'll be happy to respond there. I am recording these podcasts long in advance to make sure I have lead time. That's another reason I'm doing this. Uh, One of the other side effects of my trip to CERN in my time there is that I've developed pretty serious tendonitis, whether it was caused by the poor work environment there or whether an existing condition was just grossly inflamed. I'm still not sure. Either way, the projects I have been doing, such as Math from Scratch and the Summer School Projects and a lot of the other regular reviews, need to be cut back. There's a lot of typing and I need to find some other way to deliver content that has less typing. So I'm trying the audio format. Part of the reason I chose the specific X-Files retrospective is inspiration from the excellent Mission Log podcast that's being provided over at the Nerdist Network, which is going through every episode of Star Trek they're doing it in broadcast order for the most part. They made exceptions for the pilot. We'll be doing something similar here. We will be going through every episode of the X-Files in almost broadcast order. There is going to be one exception for an episode that was intended to be seen in a different order than it was broadcast. Special effects issues caused that one to be delayed, which ends up making some character moments a little wonky. It's like something major happens one week and it's ignored for another three weeks. More details on that when it comes, but we will be showing that in the original intended order. We will also be covering the two movies, X-Files Fight the Future and X-Files I Want to Believe, as well as all episodes of the Lone Gunman spin-off. In addition to those, we've got about 6 to 12 special episodes that are going to be inserted at certain points. You'll probably start to figure out the format as we come to them, and sort of learn what to expect and when to expect it. But we're hoping that you'll enjoy those, those little extras as well. So, so much for the introductions. Now we'll get into the first episode analysis. 
So the best place to start is the pilot. Going through this, we're going to be talking about some of the TV vernacular. A lot of you are going to be familiar with things, maybe not everything. So we'll cover some of them here. Now, the first point that a lot of people are going to be familiar with is what a pilot episode is and the way American television works. So basically, networks don't want to make a massive commitment of multi-million dollars to TV series, especially these days. But this has been true for decades. Instead, series had to make a pilot episode. So it's sort of take it for a spin, see how it flies. So they produce one episode, they bring it in, try and sell it to the networks. Now, often changes are asked for after those episodes. If you've been following along with the Mission Log podcast, you've heard of a two pilots that they had for Star Trek, which was very rare, and they are very different pilots. The X-Files pilot has a lot of what we're going to see throughout the series, and it also has some things that changed almost immediately. I'll be going through some of those. Each episode does have a title, even though that title's not displayed on screen. They were available online by the time we got into the middling seasons around 1995. The alt.tv.xfiles news group was very active. I was on there all the time. There's pointers to the Fox websites. We could find a lot of information and typically knew which episodes were going to be aired in which order, including when the reruns were coming. Made it quite convenient on our end. So the first episode was the pilot. Chris Carter created the series. Now, this is the first series Chris Carter created, and that's part of the thing that made X-Files so special. See, he'd never been a showrunner before. He had worked in TV, he'd written episodes, but they were sparse, just the occasional episode here and there. I'm not sure if he was part of a writer's room or if he was just freelancing. I suspect it was more freelancing. So the way TV typically works in America once it's been picked up is they'll have a writer's room. So they'll have a series of staff writers, maybe a couple of freelancers get together and break the story. So they'll figure out, okay, at what point in the story do which events happen? What do we have going into the first commercial break? What scene do we break on going into the second commercial break? How do all the episodes fit together in the season? What subplots are we going to have stewing? So it's it's almost as though a whole season is written by collaboration in these writers' rooms. Now, I wasn't a part of the series, but from what I understand, X-Files didn't have so much as a writer's room as it just had Chris Carter. People could come in and they'd pitch their idea for the monster of the week, for the mythology. The staff writers usually got the mythology episodes, or the ones that were building to something big, although they clearly didn't frequently did monster of the week episodes as well, whereas other people would come in and pitch monsters of the week, but instead of pitching it to a room and having everyone hash it out, they were more pitching it just to Chris Carter himself, and he'd give the green light or the red light. So it's entirely possible that most of his experience was freelance, that was the way he was comfortable writing, and that's the way he designed his show. He could very well have had a lot of writers from experience before this point, I'm not entirely sure, and he just decided that works better for his sensibilities, that works better for his mentality. A lot of it may have also come into the fact that the X-Files did have an overarching conspiracy. There was a lot of stuff going on that the audience didn't know about, and a lot of the writers didn't know about at the time. But Chris Carter did have it mapped out in advance, and it was put together and worked on in that sense. So a lot of these elements, as I said, are present in the pilot, and there are elements in the pilot that we don't see again. One of the first things that we see is the structure of the series. So different series have different structure. The X-Files had teasers. A teaser in a TV series is a short little scene you see before the opening credits. The X-Files use these quite often to put things in motion and introduce the audience to the monsters or the mystery or whatever this week is going to be about. Then we'd have the opening credits, or in the case of the pilot, just a simple title card. Beyond that, then we see the meat of the episode when Mulder and Scully typically get involved, and it really becomes a police procedural with heavy supernatural science fiction and fantasy elements. 
So with that procedure in mind and with that structure, they were able to sort of lay out a format for the series. You can know what to expect. They play a lot with that structure as the series progresses. Just, you know, keep it from getting old, do something different, do something fresh. But in these first few seasons, that's very much what we see. We also see the location shooting. There's a lot of woods and forests in this area and in this series. Part of that is because the series launched when there were a lot of tax cuts and tax incentives to film a series in Vancouver. So the first five seasons of the series were filmed in Vancouver itself. One of the big reasons for that is the tax incentives. Another big reason is that the Vancouver area and the lower mainland BC provides a lot of variety in terms of outdoor environments. If you know what you're looking for and you know where to set up your cameras, know where your field crews can go, you could film virtually any outdoor environment with the possible exception of a desert. In fact, we will see a desert later on, and the scene was written for the desert specifically because they finally could after moving to LA. So anyway, Why the X-Files? This is a show I was passionate about. This is a show that had a lot of meat, and we'll go through exactly why that is as we talk about this first episode, and we talk about the elements we have that lead into that bigger picture. One of the first things we'll notice about this episode, first we have the opening teaser that sets up the monster. In this case, the monster is the alien abductions. Now, the alien abduction conspiracy and the alien conspiracies in general are a huge part of this series. There are people who know it for that and only for that, and will forget that the majority of the episodes were just random monster of the week that we never saw again. In this case, there's a young girl running through the woods. She's running away from something. She's being chased. We don't see a monster. We don't see a person. We, what we do see is a bright light, and she's basically frozen in her tracks or on the ground, as the case may be. A silhouette comes out of the light. There's a a cyclone of leaves blow around them, bright flash, the light fades out, it's now daytime when the initial scene began in the middle of the night. The woman is dead. She's surrounded by county coroners and other county officials investigating her murder. A detective identifies her as a member of his son's graduating class. People react going, would that be the class of 89, sir? Is it happening again? So not only have we had this strange event, the locals know this is not the first time there's something going on specifically with that graduating class. Then we cut to the title card. The distinct opening music and montage don't exist yet. What we see here is pretty stock for a TV pilot. We see what we call a title card. It just says The X-Files, the title of the show, a couple notes, fades in, fades out, but really not much more than that. This is very common with pilots. Much of the reason is that the typical way to put together a TV opening credit sequence is to bring in clips of the characters and the actors from the different seasons, introduce them that way. As we're going to see next week, that's not what the X-Files does at all. After this opening sequence, we cut to the FBI. Special Agent Dana Scully is checking in. She's reporting for a new assignment. She meets with three people, only one of whom is named on screen. This is Section Chief Scott Blevins. The second man that we see is actually credited as the third man. He's the other one that takes part in the conversation. The third person we see, who apparently is the second man, or the first as they're counting, is just a silent man who stands in the corner smoking a cigarette, played by William B. Davis, better known as the Cigarette Smoking Man. He's going to be a huge part of the ongoing mythology of this series. Section Chief Blevins begins by talking to Scully and asking her what brought her to the FBI and, you know, why she's interested, what this opportunity is and what it means to her, which is actually a pretty efficient way of introducing us to the characters as well. It's essentially a job interview. She's a medical doctor. Rather than going into private practice for herself, she came to the FBI, which she says is because she saw it as a way to distinguish herself, even though her parents still believe it's an act of rebellion. This 
sets up an episode we're going to see later in the season when we meet her parents. She's then asked if she knows an agent, Fox Mulder. She says yes, although it's by reputation only, and she describes his reputation, introducing us to him. He had a nickname at the Academy as Spooky Mulder. We don't get to that right away. What we get are the legitimate credentials first. So we know he was an Oxford-trained psychologist. We know he's got a knack for profiling. And we know that these profiles and these behavior models that he can apply help catch serial killer Monty Props. Because of this great success, he's allowed a little bit of leeway to pursue personal projects. He found the X-Files, he's been digging through them. These are the cases that are not only unsolved, but which have been labeled unsolvable. So these are every FBI account of alien abductions, UFO sightings, anything that might be a bit paranormal. The kinds of things that they typically just want to go away. So in the course of the conversation with Section Chief Blevins and the Third Man, it's made very clear to both Scully and the audience that she's been assigned to the X-Files to basically make sure that there's nothing left, that there's no justification for keeping this open, they can shut them down and get both of these agents back onto more legitimate projects. Or as Scully puts it, am I being assigned to debunk the X-Files? To which Blevins responds not yes or nothing explicit, but just, we trust you'll make the proper scientific analysis, which the audience clearly understands to be a yes. So we follow Scully as our point of view character throughout basically the entire episode, with a brief exception near the end. Our next step with Scully is to follow her to Mulder's basement office. So she comes in, just calls out, and she's greeted with the voice saying, nobody here but the FBI's most unwanted. As she's coming in, she looks at the office. There's papers everywhere. It's a state of disarray. There's a bulletin board with a very distinctive poster we're going to be seeing a lot of. It says, I want to believe, with a flying saucer on it. Right here, we get a very good idea of who Mulder is and start to get some inkling of why it is that he does what he does and what he's looking for. So when she comes in, she says she's assigned to work with him. He says that he's under the impression that she was sent to spy on him. So we get a little bit of an adversarial relationship. There's also mutual respect. They have read each other's files. He's read hers. Turns out this medical doctor did her undergraduate thesis on Einstein's twin paradox, a new interpretation. As he puts it, rewriting Einstein is a pretty impressive credit. This also establishes for the audience that biology is not Scully's only scientific expertise. She's familiar with other areas, in this case physics as well. This will turn into a larger part during the series, as Scully's the one who explains the science both to Mulder and to the audience, even though there's a lot of cases that Mulder would be expected to understand, or at least he should, with his background. We'll get to that more in episode two. After this, we kick off the first of many slideshow presentations when Mulder is telling Scully what he's already found in the X-Files and how it relates to what's going on now. So he starts off with a slideshow where we see a number of corpses, not just the recent corpses in Oregon, but in other areas where all the corpses have these two little marks on their lower back. In those marks is a chemical compound that hasn't been identified. So Scully can't identify the compound. She recognizes it's organic, but that's it. Nobody has recognized it. So this warrants investigation. She asks Mulder what he thinks is going on, and you could tell by the conversation, he's testing the limits. He asks her if she believes in extraterrestrials. She says, logically, no, when you look at the power consumption. Basically says that she doesn't believe aliens exist because she doesn't believe they could get here, which is a bit of a logical leap. We could say that aliens exist, but that doesn't mean they've been here. At any rate, you could see Mulder's a bit disappointed. You could see he understands this is going to be an uphill battle. He's going to start keeping some of his theories to himself for a while, at least until he gains some respect and some credit with her. So the pair of them decide to go out to Oregon. Well, actually, it wasn't really a pair decision. Mulder told her they were flying out at 8 a.m. the next day. 
So he's very much taking charge of these investigations. Now, on the flight is one of the first things that really starts to set the series apart. Up to this point, it started off as a stock procedural. We've gotten introduced to our characters, and we've seen the first standing set. One of the things that sets the X-Files apart in a lot of ways is their ability to stretch a TV budget to some pretty surprising proportions. One of the things that you can do to stretch a TV budget is use a lot of what are called standing sets. Every TV series has sets. This is what they film on. This is where they shoot. Even a lot of reality shows. It's just location shooting. Whatever location they're going to becomes the set. Now Mulder's office is one of the few standing sets. They call it a standing set because when the series is in production and even between seasons, that set stands. It is not taken down until the series is completed. This is a set that they know they're going to need on a regular basis. If you want to keep your budgets down, you use a lot of standing sets and you use them as often as possible. Cover as many scenes as possible, really keeps the production budget down. You also get the occasional swing set. These are sets that don't necessarily stay standing at all times, but they're sets that are designed so that you can easily dismantle them and put them back together for the occasional times you do need them. So you can free up that space for something else. So, for example, Mulder's apartment could have been what they call these swing sets. You build it today, you swing it around, you turn it into something else, sometimes just by moving around decorations. Now, the X-Files didn't use a lot of standing or swing sets. We basically have Mulder's office, Mulder's apartment, later on we'll see Skinner's office, there's a couple of other areas that are of a similar tone and of a similar nature, the kinds of things we see on a regular basis, but for the most part, it depends on location shooting. Instead of building sets and keeping them up and reusing them to keep things cheap, they just went to existing locations and filmed there so they didn't have to build anything. So we've seen our first standing set, then we see an airplane. Now, Mulder and Scully do fly a lot. I suspect that this scene was written primarily to have that airplane set so they could have the conversations on the way to or from their cases. But if you look carefully, you'll see again the TV budget is being stretched. So we have the airline fuselage, we have the passengers in the seats, but we don't have or a lot of faces. If you're looking through the airplane, we can clearly see the face of the flight attendant. We can see the face of the man in the seat behind Scully. And that's about it. The rest of them are just tops of heads above it. We don't see their lips moving when they speak. It's entirely possible that these are not even paid extras. These could be production crew they were paying to be there anyway, and just said, okay, you sit there, you sit there, you sit there, just to make the plane look full. The plane hits a batch of turbulence. Some of the luggage starts coming out of the overhead compartments, and this is what they use to express the turbulence. So we see the reaction on Skelly's face from a low camera angle, where hers is the only clearly visible face. We see Mulder's almost complete lack of reaction as he's lying across some seats listening to his Walkman, but that's about it. Uh, the actor behind Scully lurches, although he's apparently not an actor. The man who played that part was David Duchovny's father. We hear a bit of a cacophony. There's all human noises, there's a crying baby, there's people reacting. So they're reacting to this when all we've really seen are the reactions of a couple of faces, a shaky camera, and luggage and bags falling out of the baggage compartments. Again, done on the cheap. If you think about it, when you're really watching this scene, you hear a lot of voices. You get the impression of a full plane and a lot of people reacting, a lot of people crying. There's a baby, as I mentioned. We don't see any of them on screen. These can all be stock sound clips they were pulling from libraries and just inserting that are free to use. So again, it feels like there's a lot more money spent on the show than there was. It's not that the budget was tiny, it's that the ideas that they had needed every single cent they could get. This continues when they arrive. Mulder and Scully are driving a vehicle. They've got the rental car, one of many rental cars, as they're heading to the first site. There's a bit of an electrical disturbance. Mulder pulls over, takes a spray can out of the trunk, and paints an X on the road. 
Scully asks why, what's going on. He says it's probably nothing, almost dismissive. But you can tell he's had ideas that he's not willing to share at this point. Now the next scene is pretty expository. They're trying to exhume a corpse because they've noticed in these files there are four similar deaths, but only one had those distinctive marks, and that's only the recent one. Scully also notices that the first three autopsies were done by a different coroner than the most recent one. So maybe the first guy either missed it or deliberately hit it. When they show up to exhume the body of one of the previous victims to check them, the coroner arrives with his daughter, and he is basically freaking out, telling them they can't do this. We get a lot of expository dialogue, so the pace is starting to slow down a little bit. We mostly get explanations. He's been out of town. That's why he didn't do the recent autopsy. That's why things are starting to bubble and come to light now. But because it's slowing down, we need something to liven things up. One of the first things that we see is a pretty expensive shot that's just for a second or two. Most shows, you just pull the coffin out of the, out of the hole, cut to the autopsy room. That's not what the X-Files did. We see a shot that's about two seconds with the camera inside the grave, looking at the coffin as it's rising up. This is the kind of shot you don't normally see on TV. You need an usually small camera, you need a setup, it takes a lot of blocking, it takes a lot of time just to get that one shot. Beyond that, when they pull the coffin out, a strap breaks. The coffin falls off the crane, it rolls down, breaks open on one of the graves, and that's how they get access to it. Again, very unusual for TV. It's not just cut straight to the autopsy room. They're showing that things can go wrong, it's a little more interactive, and it injects a little bit of action right after that pretty expository conversation between Mulder and Dr. Nimmin. They pull the coffin open, find out that the body inside doesn't look even remotely human. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. They won't know until they get it into the autopsy bay to run a few tests. Now the next thing we see is the autopsy bay. This is likely a set that was a standing set that was redressed very frequently. It might have been a swing set. Pretty much all the autopsy bays that we see over the course of the series, and we do see a lot of them, are about the same physical size. And they have some of the same facilities, such as the sinks and things in the same places. Standard medical trays, there's no really distinctive piece of equipment. It's just slight placement of cupboards, levels of lighting. So they really could be using the same set over and over to establish a lot of this. And it's in here you find out that Mulder is willing to believe that there is something very alien going on. There's definitely some extraterrestrial involvement in his mind, but he does understand the need for quantitative proof. That's his goal, is to get this documented proof. So he orders a battery of tests. He's basically ordering Scully around as her superior, telling her to run every test in the book. What they can't get here, they'll order to go. Get the documentation they need. One of the things that they do find is that this corpse, which no longer looks human, does have an object buried in its nasal cavity that they're unable to identify. The autopsy continues into the night. Uh, in fact, we cut to another Scully-only scene. She's definitely our point-of-view character. And she's in her hotel room after 4 a.m. going through the results of the autopsy and making notes. She's got Ray Soames' head x-ray up on the lampshade in her apartment so she could see this x-ray and this thing in his nose that can't be identified. There's a knock at the door. It's Mulder there, jogging suit. He can't sleep. He's going for a run. Does she want to come? She says no. He asks if she knows what that thing up Ray Soames' nose was yet. She says no, and she's not losing any sleep over it. We know she is. We see that she's lying there, eyes open. She's trying to put up a good front, trying to maintain her skepticism, and trying to show that she is putting her faith in science. But this is clearly bugging her. There's something in here that she doesn't understand and has no way to explain. There's something going on. She may not believe Mulder's alien abduction theory, but she knows that someone has been doing something to the people in this town. So the next day they're continuing their investigation and they find a local hospital that has a couple other members of the class of 89. One of them is Billy Miles. He's a boy in a waking coma. 
He has been since a car accident. Peggy O'Dell was in the same car accident. She's not in a waking coma. She's perfectly cognitive. She does like to read to Billy. He likes it when he reads to her, and she's confined to a wheelchair. Mulder requests a cursory medical examination of Peggy. She overhears this and freaks out, falls out of her wheelchair. When she's down, Mulder takes the opportunity to confirm that she has the marks on her lower back that all the victims have had. Scully sees this, storms out of the hospital. Mulder follows her, wants to know what's going on. Of course, he does it sarcastically, saying that the boy, Billy... He was wondering where he was. Too bad he didn't get to say goodbye. This kind of thing. Obviously absurdities, but breaking the ice with his sarcasm. We see a lot of that coming up, too. At this point, Scully pushes him. He starts to reveal his theories. And this is where he reveals his alien abduction theories. Which, of course, Scully's having a very difficult time with. Their next bet is to head out to the forest where these kids were found. Start investigating things there. So I'm going to pick up the pace in the synopsis. We have now established who our main characters are, the way they interact... Mulder is the believer, Scully's the skeptic. So they head out to the woods, they are driven away by the local detective. When they head back to the hotel, Scully finds some marks on her lower back, asks Mulder to check them out. Turns out they're just mosquito bites. It's enough of an icebreaker, though, and enough of a nervous situation that it opens up a little bit, and Mulder starts to open up to her, and he tells her about a key, one of the huge parts of the series coming up. It turns out that when he was a child, his sister was abducted, as he puts it, from her bed, As far as he could remember as a child, they just went to bed one night, woke up the next day, his sister Samantha was gone. It broke up the family. He's got a pretty broken family unit. We'll meet them, too. He went to Oxford, studied psychology there. And while he was there, he met a Dr. Hans Werber, who did some deep regression hypnotherapy with him, uncovered childhood memories, which is what revealed that Samantha was actually a victim of alien abduction. That's why he has the passion for the X-Files. That's why he's exploring this. His ultimate deep-seated need is to find and recover his sister. This is going to be a huge part of the series coming up. So this conversation is interrupted by an anonymous tip. They rush out and find that Peggy O'Dell, the girl who's confined to a wheelchair, was run over when she was running across the street. When they're starting to investigate this, they learn that the autopsy bay has been trashed and the body's been stolen. They boot it back to the hotel with the rest of their evidence, only to find that the hotel's been arsoned. It's burning down in front of their eyes. There goes Scully's laptop. There goes the pictures, there go the x-rays. As far as Mulder's concerned, there's no tangible evidence left of any kind. This is when Teresa Neman, the coroner's daughter, comes to them asking for protection. They take her out of there and they find out that she and other members of the graduating class of 89 have been victims of alien abduction for years. And most of the town knows about it. In fact, the detective who keeps trying to interfere with the investigation and drive them away is the father of Billy Miles, the boy in the waking coma. So this is one of the major elements that we're going to see. There's a lot of local conspiracies going on, people conspiring against them. We also see something here that we thankfully see very little of in the future. The girl who plays Teresa Neman is one of the worst actresses in the history of any TV series. Her performance is brutal. It's almost unwatchable. Had I originally watched the pilot on the broadcast night instead of catching up later, since I wasn't hooked on the X-Files until season three, I'm not sure I would have gotten through this scene. It's that painful. At any rate, Mulder and Scully recognize that their only hope for any quantitative evidence is to exhume the bodies of the first two corpses. They head back to the cemetery and find that, nope, they're already gone. Someone beat them to it. This is when Mulder reveals his theory. This is when he gets the intuitive flash of the fantastic that he becomes known for in the course of the series. Billy Miles, the boy in the waking coma, is his pick for the tool of the aliens that's driving the abductions. He's the one that brings these kids out to the woods. As they push it, they investigate, they go to the woods, and they catch Billy Miles in the middle of abducting Teresa Neman. They catch Detective Miles trying to protect them, although Mulder is able to talk him out of it. This is the one time we see a point of view scene from Mulder's perspective in the entire episode. It's the one time we get a lengthy scene with Mulder that does not have Scully. Why? 
because this is the scene where there are witnesses to the paranormal activities. They're unable to stop Billy from helping the aliens abduct Teresa. Or the presumed aliens, anyway. There's a white flash of light. When that light goes away, both Billy and Teresa are back. Billy's out of his coma. Teresa's fine. The marks are gone. Billy testifies under oath, talks about the tracking device that he had in his nasal cavity, talks about how he was just being used by the aliens. This does not go over well with Section Chief Blevins or the third man. She meets with Detective Blevins. They are clearly pushing to have the X-Files shut down because there's no tangible evidence of any kind, and there's no way that they could prosecute the crime as the report was written anyway. This is Scully's saving grace, and she's what keeps the X-Files open. Unknown to Mulder, she had the device that was in Ray Soames' nasal cavity on her person at the time of the fire. It is the only tangible evidence that survived, and she's had the metal analyzed. It cannot be identified. She leaves that with Section Chief Blevins and the third man. On her way out, passes the cigarette-smoking man in the hallway as he goes to Section Chief Blevins' office. We cut to another sleepless night for Scully. She's at home in bed, staring at her clock at 11.21. Mulder calls, tells her that all the data has been destroyed. There's no files in Oregon. There's no files on the base. There's nothing left but those files that they created when they returned. There's basically being shelved, and the investigation is virtually over. She claims she's not losing any sleep over it. Again, we know she is. The final scene of the episode is of the cigarette-smoking man taking that evidence that Scully had and putting it in a file in a huge warehouse. It's just one in dozens and dozens of boxes stacked floor-to-ceiling, very deep. He slowly walks out, closes the door behind him. We see the sign on the door is your exit strategy in case of fire and have to leave the Pentagon in an emergency. From here we cut to the closing credits. Now this sets up a lot of what we're going to see. We know now that the cigarette smoking man is part of the conspiracy to keep these data under wraps. We know how high up he goes. He's got access to the Pentagon. And we know that Scully is skeptical. She is looking for answers for science first, but she's not dismissing what she's seeing. It is bothering her. She is staying up at night. We also see the first instance of 1121. 1013 and 1121 are going to show up a lot in the course of the series. Why? Because Chris Carter was born on October 13th. His production company is even 1013 Productions, and his wife was born on November 21st. These times show up a lot in the first few seasons, as references to these two birthdays. So that's basically what we've seen. There's some elements that are going to change. We will see the shift from the point of view character away from Scully towards Mulder, especially in about mid-season two, and episodes following from there. We're going to see more of the supporting cast come in, and starting next week, we're going to be introduced to Mulder's first informant. And this is when we really start to see the conspiracy shaping up. Beyond that, we're going to be introduced to some of the monsters of the week that the series also did extremely well. Thank you for joining us for our first X-Files retrospective podcast. We look forward to doing this over the course of the next nine years. And we will hope that you stay along for the ride. We would love to include listener feedback as we go because of the timescales involved and because of how far in advance these are being recorded that is going to be difficult. You are all encouraged to go to Bureau42.com where this was originally posted and leave your feedback in the comments section there. The introductory and outgoing music are both portions of a song called Outside Poolside by an artist named Laswell. It was offered at the Creative Commons Mixter.org website. I'd like to thank him for that. It's perfect tone for this podcast. That said, please join us next week as we examine Deep Throat and the weeks following as we go through the rest of the series.